Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Heart Podcast, recording from BME House in the heart of central London. I'm Dr Alistair Lindsay and in today's podcast we'll be discussing the Charleston Comorbidity Index and its use in patients hospitalised with acute coronary syndrome. This is on the back of a paper recently published in Heart by Dr. Dragana Radanovic and colleagues from Switzerland who looked at a national registry and used the Charleston Comorbidity Index to try and discover the impact of comorbidities on patients presenting with acute coronary syndrome. I'm delighted to say that uh, one of the main authors, Dr. Philippe Urban, joins me on the line now from Switzerland. Good evening, Philip. Yes, good evening. Well, thank you very much for your paper, which we very much enjoyed reading at heart. And I, I think it's a very novel in many aspects. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the AMIS registry, which this, pa- this paper focuses on. I understand it's a, a large registry that's been going on in Switzerland for some time now, looking at acute coronary syndromes. Absolutely, yes. It's been going for a number of years and it's been refined over time, but we now have overall uh, in excess of 40,000 patients in the registry. Depending on what particular focus we have for a given topic, then we have to limit the number of patients, usually because we were not collecting all the data uh, from day one. Uh, But yes, it is a longitudinal ongoing effort of most hospitals that admit patients with acute coronary syndrome in Switzerland. And, uh, of course, it's got the limitation of all registries, but the beauty is that for many issues, we can actually look at the way things develop over time. And so uh, it's generated uh, quite a large number of different papers looking at different angles of acute coronary syndrome. Yes, and I, I, it seems to me it must be a very comprehensive database, too, because uh, you've made an extensive list of patient comorbidities, which forms the subject of this paper. And um, you've used the Charleston Comorbidity Index to try and score the severity of those comorbidities. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Charleston Comorbidity Index? Certainly. The, the concept came from the realisation that Randomized trials select patients, and they should do so because they're trying to get rid of background noise in terms of events which are unrelated to whatever the focus of the trial is. But the net result is that we then start living in a dream world of beautiful patients with single problems, and that situation isn't necessarily uh, that of everyday life in a hospital. And of course, the beauty of a registry is you take everybody, and so instead of uh, ruling out patients based on comorbid conditions, you you want to include them, but you also want to account for these comorbid conditions. We started looking for the best way to try to count for comorbidities. And at the end of the day, there aren't that many scoring systems. And the Charleston Comorbidity Index, which was published by Mary Charleston in 1987, uh, which actually was basically uh, using uh, all comers admitted to an internal medicine ward, actually has been then used by a number of investigators in different settings to try and have a number to quantify the comorbid load of these patients. And we found that it fitted reasonably well um, into the acute coronary syndrome patients we have in AMIS. Yes, so you went to the database, I presume, and you started to analyze uh, the comorbidities that were, well, did you take all comorbidities uh, at face value to start with? Well, we, we took the list that Mrs. Charlson had devised for her scoring system. Um, and we applied that. So we collected the information based on the cutoff values that she had reported so that we could be consistent and that we could look back at the literature and compare our data to others. And it's worked reasonably well, and others have done so as well, also in the field of acute coronary syndrome and, and elsewhere. You basically give points for different situations, for different clinical situations. One of them has pretty much disappeared, which was 
uh, full-blown AIDS, which had a very high score in terms of predicting hospital and later more mortality. But, but of course, that's now become a, an extreme rarity. But the rest hasn't changed that much, and it's interesting to see that the, the Charleston Comorbidity Index score definitely carries a lot of impact on the on the prognosis of these patients. Yes, well, maybe you could talk us through that uh, next. You found that in terms of in-hospital mortality, and uh, we can come to it in a moment, but you did have a long-term follow-up data as well. But in terms of in-hospital mortality, what comorbidities did you find were most serious? So uh, the most serious predictors were uh, heart failure, metastatic uh, cancer, uh, renal disease, and uh, diabetes. They were the strongest predictors of in-hospital mortality. And that doesn't come as a gigantic surprise, of course, but, but for instance, typically in an acute coronary syndrome trial, you will very seldom find any data on what happens when this disease is combined with cancer uh, because those patients are precisely excluded from those trials. And so we simply don't know what happens to those patients. Now we begin to have an idea, and it confirms one, one's preconceived idea that, that they have a worse prognosis, of course. Yes, and I think also one of the most important findings of of your work is that it seems to also influence what medications the patients are given. Absolutely. People with more comorbid conditions are usually older, and for a number of reasons, some of which may actually be entirely appropriate, but others may not be. Uh, Those patients seem to get less reperfusion, they get less uh, guideline-dictated treatment, and they do poorly. Whether it's a, entirely a consequence of less treatment is unlikely, but, but it certainly contributes. Yes, I mean, uh, the classic example would be the example of COPD patients who come in with acute coronary syndromes. We always feel a little bit nervous about giving the patients like that beta blockers, but we know if we don't, then their cardiac morbidity and mortality is higher. Exactly, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, and the patient who's recently been had surgery for a, a, some nasty problem, then it's unlikely that he's going to get the more enthusiastic antithrombotic treatment, um, and so on and so forth. And sometimes it's appropriate. If people are, are really at the end of their life, then probably it's not correct to, 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 to consider invasive treatment, aggressive management, and so it may be better medicine to withhold guideline-mandated treatment. Uh, this we're beginning to look at, but it's not in the current paper, and it's, it's a quite a difficult issue to tackle. Was it right or was it not right? Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. I can see it's not going to be an easy challenge for any of us because I think one thing that springs to mind in in reading this paper is that we know that our population is getting older and that uh, age-adjusted mortality rates from myocardial infarction are actually uh, getting higher. So uh, it's dropping at an individual age, but patients are maybe having their infarcts later. And so it seems to me that actually patients are going to be presenting with more comorbidities in future. And I noticed that in your population, around about 50% of the patients had a significant comorbidity. Is is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And it's usually in the range of 10 to 15% have a really very heavy load, i.e. Charlson index of three or greater and those people have a markedly worse prognosis. For instance, in a previous paper that we published in a Swiss journal three years ago, the in-hospital mortality was 14% for people who had a Charlson comorbidity index of three or greater versus 3% for those people who had zero comorbidity. So 
very different situation. Right. But you mentioned a moment ago, I think quite rightly, it's uncertain whether this is due to uh, medications not being given, guidelines perhaps not being followed, or whether these are perhaps just patients that are, that are more sick anyway. Uh, but perhaps there's an exact answer to this, but what's your gut feeling? Do you think that knowing the uh, data like this will help us to perhaps improve outcomes for patients with comorbidities? I, I would hope so, of course. And I think there definitely must be one angle is um, be careful because when you withhold life-saving treatment on very sick patients, you may actually uh, make things become dreadfully worse. But, but on the other hand, um, it, it may also help us understand that, that some people are simply too sick and that whatever you do uh, is not going to help them all that much. At the moment, it's more about quantifying the problem and defining it rather than leading directly to uh, practical conclusions in terms of what best to do. Yes, absolutely. And I can see why a national registry like this is, is so powerful in that regard. Yeah, we think it's really interesting. For instance, we were able to look through the 90s and uh, the early years of this century, we were able to see that the rate of reperfusion increased solidly year over year and became more and more mechanically based and less and less thrombolysis. And now in Switzerland, thrombolysis for acute MI is less than 5%. It used to be the dominant mode of treatment 15, 20 years ago. So we've been able to look at that um, and we can monitor it. We can also monitor uh, the appearance of new antithrombotic treatments like the new anticoagulants or the new antiplatelet agents versus aspirin, and we can see how it's being adopted, how, how these treatments combine. There are a number of things beyond the Charlson comorbidity index which are uh, very interesting to look at over time. Absolutely. I think you've said it very nicely there. You've highlighted the importance of national registry databases, which the Swedes we know have have led on for a number of years and have used their data to very good effect. I think here in the UK, we're, we're, we're coming around to the idea, but certainly we don't quite have the efficient feedback system that you highlight there uh, at the moment, but we certainly are getting more up to date with our data collection. Well, Philip, thank you very much indeed. That was a fascinating oversight of your paper and it's interesting to hear that there is more work ongoing as well. Thank you very much for discussing it with us. Not at all. It was a pleasure. Thank you.